Well, good morning, First Free Church. It's so good to be with you guys in person. Wow, holy cow, can we give it up for our worship team? They are, that, that was amazing. I am so happy to be in person, finally not just straight in front of a camera. During our 9 a.m. service, our camera crew had it easy because I was right here, and now they're going to get some good, good workout today with their arms. But uh, I love to wander, and so I'm just happy to be able to finally move and just move around, and hopefully you guys are far enough away. I still can't spray you, so, so it's good. My name is Steve. I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at First Free Church, and we have been studying in the book of Colossians here for the past few weeks, and we've just been going verse by verse, line by line, word by word, not skipping anything because we do believe that God's word is breathed out by God in the words of Hebrews and that it's, it's helpful for us. And so we're going to just keep going through it uh, bit by bit. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 11 through 14 today. I, like last week, you guys were like, man, we only did two verses. It's, it's going to be an eternity before we finish. But today we're going through four verses. We are doubling down. So it's going to be, I mean, we're, we're going to fly through. So I'm really excited uh, about that. The book of Colossians, just a little bit of review, is a, is a really rich letter. It's written by Paul to uh, the church in Colossae, the, the Colossian Christians, and it's likely that Paul didn't meet many of these Christians that he's writing to, but he says he's heard of the love that they have. See, they were so passionate about the relationship with Jesus, and it, it, it ignited in them this love for others that spread word all the way to Paul, and so he hears of their love. So they're doing a lot right. Now, they're not perfect, and we'll, we'll get to that later on uh, in, the, in the coming weeks as we get further into this letter. They still had things that they could certainly work on, but they were doing some great things for the kingdom of God. And so Paul's writing, and he has a, a prayer for them. So he writes this prayer, and last week we, we started off with that, and it was a prayer that they would live a life that was pleasing to God, that they would know God's will and live out for him. And so this week we're going to continue that prayer. That prayer keeps going on, and this is going to expand on what we learned last week. And so if you missed last week's uh, message, I encourage you after this morning to, to go back and watch that. Uh, our senior pastor, Adam, uh, preached uh, a great message and just expounding uh, that section of the prayer uh, in, in those two verses, uh, verses uh, 9 and, and 10. And so we're going to be, like I said, in 11, and uh, this is just going to be packed with some powerful truths for all believers of all times, including us here today in Baldwin, Missouri. So we are going to be uh, uh, starting right here. We also pray, verse 11, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power. Let's stop right there. Glorious power. Paul is, is doubling up on these words that are, that are similar. And if, if you know anything about Jewish literature, they often would try to, if they had two uh, words that were somewhat similar and they put them together, a Jewish audience reading that would say, okay, pause. We need to pause on this and really focus on this. And Paul is saying, uh, just reminding us that God has such incredible power. It's not just regular power that we're used to, whether it's uh, authoritative power from our government or anything on earth. It's, it's glorious power. It is shining power. It is just amazing, unfathomable power. 
That's what Paul's trying to get his Jewish audience to reflect on. And he actually expands on this in another prayer to the Ephesians, to to a a church in Ephesus. He writes another prayer, which he he just writes down these prayers in the middle of his letters, and I love it. There was a a, a couple months ago, I got a a text from from someone, and it was like, I'm reading through it, and I'm so confused. I'm like, what is this person doing? And they were praying. They were sending a prayer through text to me. And it was like the weirdest thing, but then I was like, wait— that's actually pretty cool. They just texted me the prayer. You know, they were in a meeting and I was, I was probably busy at work and I just got a text that, man, my friend is praying for me. And that was really encouraging. So Paul's doing this in his letters where he just breaks into prayer. And so he does this in Ephesians uh, 1, 19 through 23 to expound on God's glorious power. He says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. In case we couldn't fully appreciate Paul's uh, words on glorious power, he expands on it and says, man, this is the God, this is the power of God who raised Christ from the dead, who is above any human institution or governing authority or anything that moves or lives or breathes on this earth. It is a power unknown to us because it is so great and amazing. He continues, says, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. So Paul says, not just some of his glorious power, all of his glorious power, not just some of his endurance, all endurance, not just some patience, all patience, not just sometimes thanking the Father, but always thanking the Father, not just having a little bit of joy in you, but being filled with joy. Paul is praying a big prayer for the Colossian Christians. He's throwing out a Hail Mary prayer, and I'm not talking about a Catholic Hail Mary prayer. I'm talking about an NFL Hail Mary prayer. He's tossing it out there. He's like, man, I'm just going to pray that they have all of it. And this isn't our main point for this morning, but, but I pause on this because I wonder how often do we pray big prayers. I know for me, there are times where I want to see God at work. I want to see someone's body healed. I want to see someone's life changed. I want to see someone's heart transformed. I want a miracle. And yet, when I come before God, I don't know how bold or big my prayers really are. You see, I've, I've adopted this phrase, Oh God, not my will, but yours be done. And it sounds really spiritual. That sounds like a very spiritual prayer. In fact, that's a pretty biblical prayer. Jesus himself prays that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he dies. But we miss the first half of that prayer of Jesus. You see, Jesus is in anguish. It says that he was sweating blood because he knew the pain and the humiliation and the defeat he was going to suffer the next day on the cross. And he was pleading with God, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way that you can make this happen, that you can make the salvation for all mankind happen? 
And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. So his posture is, God, whatever your will is, of course. But he still gave his desire to God. He said, God, this is what I want. Not my will, but yours be done. Do we ever pray that? When we just have the, a desire for a miracle, we have a desire for God, to see God at work, do we actually just take it to God and pray to him? He might say no. But what's the harm in asking? It's like uh, some of you who have kids, you know, especially teenagers, you know uh, when, a, when your son or daughter comes to you or your spouse and they, they go, Mom or Dad, you just look so good today. You're not like, oh, man, thank you so much. You're like, all right, what do you want? Right? Because you know that that's not what they really want. They're they're just trying to be bashful. And I think sometimes we just treat our prayers like that. Like we're like, well, I I don't want to like disrespect God or anything like that. So I'll just, I'll just say not my will, but yours be done. Instead of just telling God, like, this is our heart's desire. He already knows it. And he wants us to come forth to him. So Paul goes big. He asks that they will be filled with God's great glorious power in order that they would have three things. That they would have endurance, that they would have patience, and that they would have tremendous joy. Now those first two things, endurance and patience. You know what Paul's doing is he's telling them, hey, you know earlier in the prayer, like what we looked at last week in verses 9 through 10, how I told you how to live a life that's pleasing to God, it's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be really hard, and it's going to take endurance and patience to get through. See, last week we talked about this, this upward spiral. Adam talked about this upward spiral of these four things that we need to do in discerning God's will for our lives. It's this spiral that we slowly begin to learn his will more and more as we continue to act it out. There's the right knowledge, which is just knowing God's will. The right understanding, which is just getting more discernment, more spiritual wisdom. Then there's right living, which is pleasing the Lord, and right actions, actually producing the good fruits. And so there's this upward spiral that is a lifelong pursuit for those of us who who believe in Jesus. It's this lifelong pursuit of just trying to grow more and more in the image of God. And we'll never fully attain it until the day we die or Christ returns, but we're going to keep going and keep trying to grow closer and closer to him. And Paul says, guess what? It is hard. And it takes time, and it takes endurance, and it takes patience. And now we look at endurance and patience, and we kind of go, is that a little bit redundant? They look kind of similar, but I think there's an important distinction between those two, and it can be uh, just summed up to the fact that uh, uh, endurance is more about things, is more about situations, and patience is more about dealing with people and relationships, So endurance, to have endurance is to be able to get up in the morning and recognize that there is a world out there that has a lot of brokenness, a lot of crazy stuff happening, a world that will not fulfill us, a world that will be difficult, uh, whether that's uh, not the ideal job or, or difficult financial circumstances or a hard family life or whatever it is, and we get up and we say, I'm going to keep following Jesus despite the difficult circumstances that I find myself in today. Whereas patience, on the other hand, is not about circumstances and situations, it's about people. See, some of us say, yeah, I could endure any situation, just get rid of the people. If, if I didn't have to deal with anyone, I could do any, like, I could endure anything. 
But obviously that's not realistic because we're made to be in relationship with people. And so patience is the recognition that there will be broken, sinful people around us who hurt us, who are difficult to be around from time to time. And it's not just the people that we think are the difficult people. It's every single person around us because we're all broken. We're all sinful. And so at different times, different people will be difficult to us, and they will never fulfill us. So patience is the ability to recognize in our friendships and in our relationships that you won't fulfill me, but rather... There's times where you're going to frustrate me. There's times where it's going to be difficult and we have to have hard conversations. And yet, because I already know you don't fulfill me, I see our relation, the goal of our relationship is for me to love you and encourage you to endure in your relationship with Jesus or to come to know Jesus. Those are so important things. And then Jesus talks about, the, or Paul talks about the third thing, which is joy. And joy is, is the inevitable result of a life lived in thankfulness to what God has done for us. So if we're thankful for what God has done, it will produce joy in our hearts and in our lives. Again, we already read this, but may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. Earlier in the summer, we talked about the destructiveness of complaining. And not only does complaining hurt us, but it, it, it lowers and lessens the effectiveness we have for the kingdom of God the more we spend time complaining. God calls us instead to have a life of thankfulness and joy. We as a church need to have endurance, patience, Enjoy as markers, as characteristics of how we follow God and how we present ourselves to the Lord and, and, and to the world. And I, I pray and hope that that becomes our regular prayer. So before we move forward, let me just pray this part of Paul's prayer over us. God, thank you for your life. Give us all, all your glorious power, that we may be filled with all endurance, all patience, and all the joy that comes from always giving thanks to you. In your name, amen. So Paul tells us we need to be thankful why? Why do we need to, to have gratitude? Why do, we, why do we need to be thankful? Because God gives us his glorious power to enable us to endure hardship, to, in, to have patience with difficult people. It's by God's power. And what I love about the rest of this passage as we get further in is Paul's going to tell us even more of what God has done. And so for the rest of our morning, we're just going to focus not on, not on application, not on what we can do. If you're like me, like I like listening to sermons and, and podcasts, when I listen to them, I want, what can I extract from it that now I can start doing each day? And, and like, what's like my action step next? Right, we love the, the so if you're like me on just getting that, that practical, I'm sorry, but today's going to be a little different because we're going to be focusing on what God does for us and just reflect, if we never just take time to reflect on God, we're missing out on such a critical part of the Christian life. And Paul's going to make that clear for us.
So we have three things that God does for us. So the first thing here is in verse 12. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. Why should we thank God first? Because he has enabled us to be a part of his inheritance. Now, inheritances are just a big deal in general for, for anyone. I mean, it is a, it usually it's a, it's a pretty large sum of money that's split between uh, descendants or, or p- people's children. So my, uh, my friend, his parents and aunts and uncles, they're in this bitter feud right now because they somehow found out what the allocations of their parents' will is before their parents even passed away. And now this has just, it's blown up. They don't talk to each other. All these siblings, there's so much bitterness between one another because they found out what their parents were willing to give each of them. Because it's not, inheritances aren't just about the, the, the financial benefit. It communicates something. It communicates how much my parents or the person that gives it to me values me compared to others. And maybe that might not be true, but that's certainly what it communicates. Because inheritances are a big deal. And so Paul's telling us we have a part in God's inheritance, which is even greater than we could ever imagine. When Paul says this and talks about this inheritance, he's tracing back to Genesis 12, where God promises Abraham that Abraham is going to be a father of many nations. And these nations, especially the nation of Israel, was going to inherit this promised land that was going to be amazing. And then we see in the Old Testament, they do inherit that land. But they have an even better promise in that they're going to inherit a new heavens and a new earth. And Paul says, now that Christ has come, it's not just descendants of Israel. It's not just the Jews who are going to inherit this. It's, it's Gentiles too. It's people who are not of Jewish descent. Whoever believes in Jesus. And in Romans 11, Paul says that we're grafted into this branch of inheritance that originally was just the Jews and now we're a part of it if we put our trust in Jesus. He says uh, also in, in Galatians 3.14, through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So because of Christ, you and I are now part of God's inheritance if we put our trust in Christ. And notice how God enables us God's the one who enables us to have that inheritance. It's not something that we've done. When Paul's talking to the Colossian Christians, they, it's not because they've done anything. And what's cool about this, this, uh, this inheritance and, and God enabling is the tense of that verb, enable. It's called the aorist tense. And basically what it is, it's a one-time action. It's not this process. It's not like the Colossians had to prove themselves over a period of time to prove that they're worthy of the inheritance. It was, no, 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 no. You've earned it. Or you haven't earned it, you've been given it in a moment, the moment you put your trust in Jesus. That God enabled you to have that. And that's what inheritances are all about. It's a gift, it's not something that we earn, something that we're given from someone else. The inheritance that God gives us gives us hope which is so important for human beings. I mean, uh, the uh, large corporations, they lose billions of dollars on employees just not showing up to work. 
They actually lose billions of dollars just because employees don't show up to work. And so there's these researchers that compiled uh, this, this research on uh, some engineers, some mechanical engineers and, and electrical engineers, and they, they kind of uh, categorized different people based on how much hope do they have. And so they had low hope individuals and high hope individuals, individuals who just seemed to have a lot of hope in their lives ahead of them, and people who just couldn't see really much hope in their lives. And they said that the, the people with high hope at the end of a 12-month period, averaged missing less than three days in that 12-month period, whereas the low-hope employees missed an average of over 10 days in a year's period. Why? Because hope is such a motivator. We're, we're built to have hope. I mean, I mean, think about it. Psychologists talk about this all the time. It's an important motivator just in our daily lives. If you have something exciting going on in the weekend, maybe you're going to the lake or your family's just getting away or you're just finally just resting and it's, and it's Wednesday, you don't care what happens to you. You're just excited for that weekend. And now negative influences bring you down less, no matter what your boss lays on your plate, no matter how many of your employees mess up big time, no matter what happens at work, you can bear it because you go, I've got that weekend ahead of me. That's why Mondays are terrible, because you're like, oh my word, this is the longest from the weekend I will ever be each week. And it's, it's brutal because that's like the least amount of hope we have, and this is when we're further away from it. But hope is such a motivating factor for us. And for us, we have the greatest hope of all. We have the trump card of hope. We have hope that we have inheritance in God the Father, in the new kingdom, and new earth, that no matter what happens in this time on earth, whether we, like, even if our life is a living hell, it'll be the closest to hell we'll ever get. That eventually we're just going to spend eternity in the kingdom of God with our creator. It's that nothing ultimately will bring us down. Because we have that great hope that God enables us to have. So he enables us to share in this future hope, which is a terrific motivator. But that's, not our, that's only our first point. And so here's our second point. And I love that there's, I love that this, this just, just these couple verses are just jam-packed with three, three amazing truths. I mean, that first truth is already amazing enough. But here's our second one in verse 13. For God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. I love this. Paul shifts from the you to the we. He's talking about you, Colossian Christians. And now he's talking about us. See, I imagine that as he's, as he's talking about this idea that God has enabled us into his, uh, to, to enter into his inheritance, and then he says, you've been transferred from darkness into light. Paul just can't help but remember on his road to Damascus when he's planning to, to, to uh, uh, create all these commands to people to kill more Christians, God meets him on the road in glorious power and glorious light and, and shows himself and blinds Paul and changes his identity, changes everything about him, changes his entire mission of life. And Paul, as he's talking about the Colossian Christians being brought from darkness to light, I just imagine him just, he can't help but include himself in that because he's just so grateful for what God's done. See, if anyone could be, enjoy the thankfulness, experience the thankfulness of what God had done for him, it was Paul. So I just love that, that, that he switches to that we. 
So God transfers us. That's the second thing that God does for us. He not only gives us a future hope in his inheritance, but he transfers us from darkness. See, God's word says that at one point in our lives, before we came to know Jesus, we were stuck in darkness, blinded from the truth that we didn't even know what was wrong with us because Satan had so put a veil over our eyes and we could not do anything right because the truth was not with us. John 3, 3 says uh, that, um, that if anyone, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We can't see spiritual truths until Christ has brought us from darkness into light. That's why anyone who hasn't been brought to Christ is missing out on, on, on so many spiritual truths. That's why our, our politicians will, ne- are, will never be able to deliver us from all injustices. That's why our leaders will never be able to stop all evil in this world because they can't even recognize the truth. Because the reality is for those of us who know the truth, who have been brought from darkness to light, know that, that the greatest issue, the greatest problem in our world isn't some ideology, isn't some philosophical idea, isn't some racial division or anything like that, guys. Our greatest issue in the world is that people don't know Jesus. That's the greatest problem in the world. And until people know Jesus and are brought from darkness to light, there is no fruit that can be produced for good. So God has brought us from this darkness into light. Enables us to see. I'm going to get in trouble for something I'm about to say. But I need to be bold and, and just say it. So when I was a senior in high school, all my, all my uh, four years in high school, my parents had gotten me like a track phone, a prepaid phone that was, you know, like a flip phone. And they said, hey, we'll, we'll gladly pay for your minutes uh, for as long as you want. But if you ever want to get like a smartphone or anything, that's on you. This is all we're going to pay for is the prepaid phone, and that's it. And so I graduated my senior year. I had saved up for my, for my jobs in high school. And I was like, you know, I'm, gonna get, I'm about to go to college. I'm going to get a smartphone. And so I did my research. I'm like, which phone do I want? And I ended up saying, I'm going to get the Samsung Galaxy S4 because I just, it's, it seemed like an incredible phone. There was so much versatility. You could create, like you had so many options of what you wanted to do. I mean, it was literally like they just unlocked any option and any opportunity you wanted on that phone. And I was like, I'm getting this. I am so excited. And I got it. And it was amazing. I mean, I remember like uh, I, I, my first day I got, I got into a car accident and lost my memory for a day. But I remember getting the phone. Because it was just such an amazing uh, time, and I, and I loved, like, I was just sitting, and it actually, it saved, I, I believe it, it might have saved my life, because I was looking down, and instead of, instead of uh, when the car came, it came at 60 miles an hour while we were stopped on a highway and slammed into the back of our car, and uh, we... I was looking down, and so my, I didn't tense up, and so it actually just created whiplash instead of actually, like, breaking bones in my neck or anything like that, which was really fortunate. But that, that's another point. Uh, my phone, though, was just amazing. That's my point. And I, uh, I just loved it. I was just living a blissful life with my Galaxy phone. And then the first time I experienced persecution was when I got a job at a church with a church staff that all had iPhones. And they made sure that I was excluded. 
See, they wouldn't let me into their group message because apparently their brains would melt if the color of their text would change to green. And, and it was just like this, and that's just, that's just what Apple users do. They exclude, they've been trained, conditioned to exclude other people and persecute those who disagree with them. And so I had that pressure going on. And then my in-laws, God love them, swindled me into getting an iPhone. They said, hey, here's a, here's a different phone plan. I know you're paying a lot. You guys can join on ours. It's cheaper. Oh, and there's a free iPhone 7. And so coupled with my financial distress and the constant pressure I was getting from my coworkers, not being in the loop on funny memes and jokes in the group text, and sometimes I would miss valuable information and they'd go, oh, yeah, I forgot you weren't part of that. Yeah, we're meeting here at 4. Like, so I got an iPhone. And for 484 days, I lived in darkness. I lived with fewer options. I lived like other iPhone users lived, persecuting, making fun of those who weren't a part of this cult. And I, I, like, I started to believe that this phone was actually a good phone. And then on the 485th day of darkness, by God's grace, I bought a Samsung Galaxy S8. And I realized, my eyes were opened again, and I realized the beauty of Samsung. Amen, church? All right, well, I, there's a couple. There's a couple silent. Yeah, see, they can't even say it. They have to just put their fist up, right? Because they're like, they're, they're scared. All right, that's a terrible metaphor. But my point is this, guys. God has brought us from darkness to light. When we were in darkness, we didn't even realize it. We didn't even realize that we were enslaved, excuse me, enslaved to our sin. So God enables us to share in his inheritance and he transfers us from darkness into light. And here's the third and final point Paul makes about what God does for us in verse 14. Christ who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. God redeems us. We have a future hope in Christ, the present reality of light, living in the light. And according to Paul, we have freedom from sin. We're redeemed from, from our slavery to sin. See, uh, this says that, that Christ, my, our, my translation says he purchased it. Others say he redeemed us. There was redemption. If, uh, if the Colossian Christians were reading it, they would see the word redemption and they would think of in their culture when slaves would be purchased out of slavery. That's what Paul's trying to share is that not only were we dark and not only were we blind to what was going on, blind to the truth, blind to our own depravity, but we were enslaved to it. We couldn't escape it. We, we were slaves to our sinful passions and whatever passions we had, we just did because that's what slaves do. We, our, sin was our master. That's evidenced in the fact by people who are still enslaved to sin when the world looks at this new ethic that Jesus has given us as Christians of suppressing these sinful desires, they think we're crazy, they mock it, they laugh at it because it doesn't make sense because they can't differentiate what are natural passions that are God-given and what are sinful passions that are the result of our slavery to sin. 
I'm a huge fan of history. I love reading historical figures and, and just different things in history. I think there's so much we can learn. I think we can learn from the mistakes of the past. I had friends come over one day and they're like, why do you have a book with a swastika on it on your coffee table? And I said, well, I'm, I'm studying the rise of the Third Reich and the Nazi party in the, in the 1920s and 30s. And they're like, dude, that's messed up. And I'm like, no, 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 it's awesome because as I read it, I'm seeing just like from a sociological level, like how could a nation accept these horrible atrocities? And I think it's important for us to learn from the mistakes of the past and, and see history through that lens. But I think we can also learn on the other side we can learn some amazing things from things from people who did incredible things in our history. So John uh, Piper, who's a author and pastor and theologian, he writes a book. It's called "21 Servants of Sovereign Joy." And he takes 21 different historical church fathers who over the past two millennia have just done immense, have had immense impact on the church. For 2,000 years. And so John Calvin, Martin Luther, Augustine, Augustine uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, different characters, different historical figures who are monumental in the development of the faith that we have today, whose shoulders we stand upon. And in the intro of one of his biographies, Piper writes, when historians list the character traits of America in the last third of the 20th century. Commitment, constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, resolve, and perseverance will not be on the list. The list will begin with an all-consuming interest in self-esteem. It will be followed by the subheadings of self-assertiveness, self-enhancement, and self-realization. And if we think that we are not children of our times, let us simply test ourselves to see how we respond when people reject our ideas or spurn our good efforts or misconstrue our best intentions. What he's trying to communicate is that historically the church has had some blind spots. All these 21 historical figures that he says, each of them have blind spots and they're usually in cohesion with the sins and the prevalent issues of their culture. So what he's saying is that today's issues are rooted in this idea that we, we can't stomach the idea that there's evil in our hearts. We can't stomach the idea that, that people are basically bad. And we, we pr protect our children and everyone from hard questions, hard truths, because we're scared, because we don't believe also in, in the uh, tenacity of individuals. And the resiliency of humans. Some of this has bled into the church in an interesting way. See, we talk so often of the sins of other people or the sins of our past. We talk about the grace of God lightly. But rarely do we delve deep into the awfulness of our own sin in our hearts each and every day. Because the reality is, while Christ, while God has, has transferred us from darkness to light, while he has redeemed us 
from our sin. We still struggle with sin each day. It's that upward spiral that we're slowly trying to get closer to Jesus, but we'll never again, we'll never finish that this side of heaven. And so we still have sin in our lives. There is still remnants of that former self that are, that are bleeding in and trying, crawling up into our lives, crawling into our hearts, trying to ensnare us again, trying to put that veil over our eyes yet again. And we spend so little time actually trying to identify those things, so little time delving into those and we just sweep it under the rug because we say, well, God's grace covers it anyway. But what Paul is saying is that we need to focus in on these things in order to magnify the goodness of God. See, in in living a life marked by endurance and patience and joy, there's perhaps... No greater motivation than seeing the depth of our sin in light of the grace of God. And I can think of no other, no better example in history that I know of who is marked by perseverance and endurance and joy, patience. His name is Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was born in uh, 1759, a year after Jonathan Edwards died. And he was born in England, and, and he served for 49 years at Trinity College, or Trinity, Trinity Church, rather, in Cambridge. So 49 years at the same church as a pastor. And for the first 12 years, his congregation was upset that he was appointed and not someone else. And so Charles Simeon went up to the, the bishop who appointed him and said, look, they want someone else. And the bishop said, well, even if you don't take this position, I won't put that other person in the position. And so Charles Simeon said, okay, I guess I'll, I'll step into this. For 12 years, his congregation locked their pews every Sunday morning when he would preach. And for 12 years, he chose to still preach to his church, to a small group of people from the community that would stand in the back because there's nowhere to sit. And his congregation grabbed that other guy that they wanted as the pastor, and they said, hey, let's do a Sunday afternoon service, and you preach for us. And they never, for 12 years, let Charles Simeon, who was ordained by God to oversee that church, to preach during that service. And that was the only service they attended. And yet for another 37 years after those 12 years, he continued. And they were still plagued by issues, plagued by controversies of people trying to tear him down. And he just continued to be faithful to God's mission for his life. And the secret to his endurance in ministry, to his patience with others, and to his joy in life rested in exactly what we talked about today. It's not about what Charles Simeon could do for God, but what God had done for Charles Simeon despite his sin, despite his wickedness. And check out what Charles Simeon says. This is a beautiful, a beautiful quote. He says, With this sweet hope of ultimate acceptance with God, I have always enjoyed much cheerfulness before men. But I have, at the same time, labored incessantly to cultivate the deepest humiliation before God. I have never thought that the circumstance of God's having forgiven me was any reason why I should forgive myself. On the contrary, I have always judged it better to loathe myself the more in proportion as I was assured that God was pacified towards me. There are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness, 
and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I've always thought that they should be viewed together, just as Aaron confessed all the sins of Israel whilst he put on the head of the scapegoat. The disease did not keep him from applying to the remedy, nor did the remedy keep him from feeling the disease. By this I seek to be not only humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. Now earlier I mentioned we're a product of our culture, and I can guarantee there were some of us that cringed at that phrase that Charles Simeon said, I'm going to endure to loathe myself. But Charles Simeon said, every single day I'm going to endure to loathe myself more and more each and every day. And Paul does the same thing continuously. Paul wanted more and more to loathe himself, to loathe his older, his former self. It's like we said, that former self is constantly trying to creep into our lives. And there's always sin continuously each and every day in our lives. And Paul says, I want more and more to loathe that every single day. Coupled with the reality that God's grace is so much greater. That the deeper I understand my sin, the deeper in awe of God's grace and the more I experience God's grace in my life. Now, this is kind of the difference between those, there's, there's many who struggle with depression or, or suicidal ideation that, that is rooted in a hatred of themselves, and they hate who God has created them to be. Some of you here this morning maybe hate who God's created you to be, or loathe your personality, or loathe parts of yourself who God's turning you into, and you, you hate it, you, you bash on yourself constantly. But that's not what Paul or Charles Simeon are talking about. They're not talking about loathing who God's created them to be because God's created you to be lovely. And God, God says of you and sees you as beautiful, as good. He says, no, I, I love you. I love the personality I've given you. I love the gifts I've given you, the strengths I've given you, the weaknesses I've given you. No, Charles Simeon and Paul were saying, I hate my former self. I hate the me that's constantly trying to get away from what Christ is calling me to. I hate that part of me that's consistently pulling me away from my relationship with Jesus. Those two, the, the two pieces, the acknowledgement and awareness of sin in your life coupled with the grace of God, are essential motivators, essential parts of keeping us enduring in ministry and keeping us patient with others and keeping us joyous on that path and that upward cycle towards God. So my question for us Today is when's the last time you experienced thankfulness? I'm not just talking about expressed thankfulness to God and said thank you for this, this, and this. But I mean truly experienced it in the light of the vileness that is in your heart. In light of God's grace. Because God's grace is meant as we look at the depth of sin that still entangles every single one of us. 
God's grace is meant to be a lens through which we can look at that. And while it's hard to, to, to see the reality of that sin in our hearts, as it's difficult to just expose ourselves to it, with the grace of God, we use it as a lens to look through and say, and yet God still loves me. And yet God still gives me his grace each and every day. And that gratitude that, ex- that we can experience that washes over us. Will truly, uh, will truly propel us into the world to make a difference and to live on mission for God. But without that, we're missing something important. He enabled us, he transferred us, and he redeemed us. Paul can't stop talking about what God has done through this prayer. And that's what brings him to a great thankfulness. And that's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, he calls himself a chief of sinners at some other point. But he says, can, he can boast in God because he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. The gospel is not about what we do. It's about what we have failed to do and what we fail to do each and every day. And more importantly, that God still grants us his grace and his mercy each and every day. And the deeper we understand God in the light of God's grace, the more we're going to experience that gratitude for what he's done. May we be a church that, like Charles Simeon, embraces this daily reminder of God's grace in light of our sin. Let us be a church that, that endures all things, that is patient with all people, that has joy in all our days. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. God, that you didn't just transfer us from darkness to life, didn't just bring us out of slavery to sin, but you gave us hope in the inheritance we have in you. And God, we thank you because of your son, Jesus. We can live in light of your grace every single day despite our continual sin. Father, as we move up that upward spiral of determining your your calling in our lives, of living a life that is pleasing to you more and more each day, God, would we each and every day be reminded of the depth of the wickedness that's in us so that we can further experience goodness of your grace. Thank you for your grace in my life.